Welcome to this week's show, season two, episode four of Who Cares What's the Point? And in this week's show, I'm talking with Professor Sally Ferguson, who is based at the Appleton Institute of Central Queensland University in Adelaide, Australia. Now, Sally and I are talking about sleep, and in particular, what happens when you restrict people's sleep, particularly for those people who work in professions or who volunteer for work that requires them to be on call. So that might be emergency service workers, healthcare workers like doctors and nurses, or those people who volunteer in those uh, fire services in rural Australia and indeed New Zealand. We talk about whether quality and quantity of sleep are affected when we restrict sleep, which we know they are, but when we are doing these jobs and in those roles, should we sleep or not when we know we're going to be woken up? Here's the conversation between myself and Sally. PhD uh, several years ago in the field of circadian circadian biology, and sleep and uh, our sleep and wake cycle is obviously one of our circadian rhythms, our twenty four hour biological rhythms. And so I moved from uh, a focus very much on circadian rhythms into sleep and sleep health, and from there into um, understanding or looking to understand the interaction between work hours and working time arrangements and sleep. Um, and so over the last 15 years, probably, I have um, done both laboratory and field-based studies with the aim of understanding how uh, working time arrangements impact sleep and how those impacts on sleep impact um, performance and waking function. And I'm always interested in this. So what interested you in circadian rhythms in the first place uh, and for you to do your PhD in that? Uh, that's, a, that's an interesting question, Saab. Uh, I'll, I'll give you the true story. <laughs> I, was, um, I was sitting in the pub after my last exam of my science degree, my undergrad Bachelor of Science, and my third-year lecturer for psychoneuropharmacology wandered in to have a beer with his students and um, asked us what we were all going to do with our lives. And having graduated with a class of 300 from one of the three universities in South Australia, I was wondering what I was going to be doing with my life with a Bachelor of Science uh, certificate. Um, and in his class, he had um, we'd learned a lot about mental health disorders and he had touched on the idea that um, some mental health disorders were associated perhaps with um, misaligned circadian rhythms. So that is internally misaligned circadian rhythms. Um, and at the time this was, well, let's not give my age away, but late, um, early 90s, um, there was a hypothesis that bipolar disorder at the time um, and other depressions were somehow linked to um, circadian rhythms getting out of whack with each other, so our melatonin rhythm out of whack with our temperature rhythm, out of whack with our sleep and wake cycle. And so I, that was pretty interesting to me. And he said, I've got this funny little project that I'd really like to do that isn't funded and what we really need is an honour student to get on board um, and uh, see where it goes. And that's actually how I started doing work with um, circadian rhythms. He had a line of depressed rats. And we, I looked at this, their um, circadian rhythms of melatonin and uh, activity. You were that on a student. I was that on a student. Uh, what a delightful story that is, that um, my career 
um, now as a research professor and a deputy dean for research, started actually um, from a conversation in the pub. Well, I love these conversations um, because you find out all these serendipitous opportunities that you just happen to be in the right time and the right place, but you were also open to that opportunity too. Yeah, most definitely. And uh, I think that's that's certainly a, something that I tell people about my journey, um, to use an overused word, uh, that I, there, were, there was never really a plan. There hasn't actually been a plan the whole way through, but I certainly have been open to, uh, to opportunities and interesting questions. And, and that's certainly something I've heard as well in conversations that I've had with people is this random walk career and not, not being afraid of taking opportunities that present themselves to you because if you are too rigid in your plan, you become blinkered uh, and mm. you don't see the other opportunities that may be making themselves and calling out to you. Yeah, absolutely. So on to sleep and health. Um, mm. So thinking particularly around, you know, I, when when I saw the paper, I was thinking about the impact of your research upon health workers, health and welfare sector workers, particularly mm. in emergency management. That's that's where mm -hmm. I'm coming from. But more generally, um, you know, we, we see people in emergency services, people in medicine who are sleeping in, in hospitals or, or uh, rescue and response teams. Many different types of shift workers would be affected by their sleeping patterns and, and unusual sleeping patterns. Yes, most definitely. The, the, um, the range of work working time arrangements um, in all sorts of industries really does present different um, sleep opportunities within the time within the 24-hour day uh, and across a week and also sleeping locations, as you mentioned. Um, uh, one of the an, – another paper that we wrote on this – on a similar theme um, authored by – first author Sarah Jay um, looks at um, the role of location in sleep as well. Um, so, you know, we have people who sleep uh, like fly-and-fly-out workers – um, Sarah did a lot of work with uh, locomotive drivers who drive across Australia, which, as you can imagine, takes a few days, um, and they sleep on the on the train. So, yeah, a, a really big range of of different uh, workers. And this this particular stream of work came out of conversations that I had with uh, firefighters, so metropolitan firefighters who um, recline and rest on station during uh, both shifts, but obviously more more um, relevant to night shifts. Um, and they talked about, well, the, the, when the bells drop, they have to be in the truck within, and you know, with their boots on and pants on, uh, within 90 seconds. And I said to them, you know, that that doesn't really match with what I understand about um, sleep and waking from sleep and then being able to perform. Um they said they can get out the door in, in 90 seconds. So I said, wow, you, that, I wonder what is actually happening with your sleep when you are resting and reclining on, on shift during a night shift. It must be very different sleep. Yeah, I mean, and we can talk about that as we as we go along. There's, there's mm. issues around quality, around quantity, mm. around um, this idea of waking very quickly, and then what are you mm. able to do once you're in that um, few moments of, of waking? But we're talking about, as you know, we've talked about the range, but we're also talking about a significant proportion of the population that is now exposed to this kind of um, these these different conditions of sleeping as part of their employment pattern. 
Yeah, the um, in Australia, we reckon there's probably about 1.5 million people classed as shift workers. Now, that's a fairly um, specific definition, but then there are also um, other people who work extended hours um, overtime on call, as we're going to talk about. Um, so, yeah, the number of people that are um, having sleep impacted by work in some way is quite high. And even, you know, what what we call day workers, which I would call myself a day worker, there certainly are times of the week, times of the year when uh, work impacts my sleep as well. Sure. And I guess the one of the fundamental questions that you ask in your paper is when people have a choice to make around getting the right rest and recuperation in order to perform in their jobs or even just to feel well, they often have to make the choice as to whether they try to sleep or not. Mm. Uh, and I guess what you're saying is that one of, the, one of your um, conditions around that is it kind of depends upon what it is that you're required to do. Yeah, and I think that that's a really important one. And I think that the, the choice to sleep or not um, – is a really you could probably have a whole uh, another podcast on this sub um, because things there are, there are more things now keeping us out of bed or away from sleep and technology is you know the most obvious one and the irony will be that people are listening to this on on some sort of device um, but you, you know the choice to actually um, go to sleep is an important one across the general population and one that we perhaps aren't quite as good making as we used to be but in terms of the choice to sleep in order to uh, prepare for a response whether that be a work response or emergency response or a um, early morning activity uh, that this that is a, a good one and it's something that is um, that not only individuals make this choice but also employers organizations are wondering about whether it is appropriate from various perspectives to allow, in inverted commas, um, people to sleep during, for example, a night shift. Yeah, I'm just sticking to that more general point at the moment. Mm. Sleep is seen as quite a, um, I guess, uh, almost like a passive activity, which you do (laughs) in between other things. Uh, And it's one of those things that people feel that they can perhaps run a little bit of a debt against and Mm. and maybe make up. And it's one of those things that actually, you know, maybe I can lose a little bit of sleep here and there. Um, Whereas actually, I think what you're saying here is that we've, with this plethora of other things that we could be doing, actively choosing to sleep is something that we perhaps don't really think about so, so much. Yeah, agreed. And I think you're absolutely right that the um, people can say, oh, I can lose a bit of, little bit of sleep here and there and here. Um, but that does add up quickly and it adds up to um, changes in the way that we function when we're awake the next day. And they can be mood or performance um, changes, but also it adds up across the longer term in terms of um, uh, chronic health conditions as well. So I think that uh, it, it's most definitely the case that um, choosing sleep uh, has benefits for all sorts of things, short and long term health and well-being. Yeah, because there are chronic illnesses that can be exacerbated by um, lack of sleep as well. We know that for sure, don't we? Yeah, we do. And we know that shift workers 
are at increased risk compared to day workers of a range of chronic health disorders, which is we, we're pretty sure is associated with um, chronic in, inadequate sleep or insufficient sleep, as well as the circadian misalignment that they experience. So yes, there are there are multiple benefits to choosing sleep. Okay, so what about let's focus then on these people who um, perhaps don't have that choice because of the profession mm. or the employment conditions that they uh, they work under. So for those people, um, when their sleep is restricted, what are the sorts of things that happen to them in the short term? Uh, yeah, good question. And this kind of harks back to the me saying earlier that we do lab and field studies. Um, and so this answer comes from both lab and field studies um, where sleep restriction, um, either through short sleep, chronic sleep um, loss over a series of nights or um, acute sleep loss, lose a whole night of sleep, for example, it has impacts on various elements of performance, things like um, hand-eye coordination, vigilance, concentration, reaction times. Um, also on decision-making, so some higher-order uh, tasks. Uh, also changes to um, mood and the way that we communicate with people, the way we respond. Um, and the, all, from, all from lab studies, but also that's replicated in field studies where um, operational performance is also impacted by not enough sleep. And subjectively, I mean, I guess the, the, if we look at how we measured that, often it's using um, sort of computer batteries of, of mm. tests. Mm-hmm. Uh, subjectively, do we have much insight into how our cognitive processing ability may have been knocked off by our um, restricted sleep? To a point, we do. Yes, we are pretty good at knowing that we are getting uh, tired or sleepy or our alertness is dropping off to a point. But the closer we get to um, falling asleep, the worse we are at actually predicting that we're going to sleep. That is why um, people run off the road in their cars um, due to a micro-sleep or less um, scary while you while you fall asleep um, watching a movie that you're pretty sure you're engaged with and then wake <laughs> up at the end of uh, or a game of basketball or tennis or something. Um, And we are up to a point okay at judging our performance, but with increasing sleep restriction, the the judgment of our own performance gets worse and worse. So it's not not unlike being intoxicated um, by alcohol. That is, we think we're doing all right, but we're actually not. I remember reading in the paper this idea that um, gross motor tasks are more resistant to interrupted or restricted sleep compared to some of the more fine stuff that we're engaged in, like hand-eye coordination. I'm wondering, has there been any or uh, studies or what's your view on whether that can lead to a false sense of confidence? Because our gross motor movements don't seem to be so... Um, knocked off as a result of lack of sleep, do we think that actually we're feeling okay? Yeah, I think that's a really good point, Saab. We did some work um, a couple of years ago headed up by Dr. Grace Vincent, who was a PhD student at the time, um, with firefighters, volunteer firefighters here in in Australia. Um, and we uh, restricted their sleep. They were doing daytime activities. Some of their acti- daytime activities were... Um, 
simulated firefighting tasks. It was all all, in, all simulated. It was in a, a large classroom. And so it was hose dragging and step stepping around things and rolling hoses. So what you might describe as those sort of um, gross motor tasks, um, physical, more physical performance. And also we had this a battery of, um, of neurobehavioral tasks. So um, more the decision-making, processing, cognitive processing and, and um, reaction time tasks. And they performed the physical tasks uh, fine. Nothing changed with the sleep restriction but the cognitive battery, things did change. And that's one of the conclusions that um, that Grace came to um, was that firefighters, in the, that, w- that was the group that we were, we were working with, may very well think they're doing fine because the, physical, the, t- the performance of the physical tasks carries on fine. No worries. But then, if they have to make a, make decisions, or they have to um, take in new information, new information, process things, uh, that might not be happening happening as well as um, it would otherwise be if they'd had enough sleep. So yes, the we we can't rely just on the subjective assessment of individuals in relation to their um, own capacity. Yeah, I'm. I'm- I'm with you on that. You know, often we think about things, you know, high risk occupations like forestry or something like mm, this, where mm-hmm. people are coming in where they haven't had enough sleep. Actually, mm. they don't feel so different and physically they seem to be performing okay. But then when something unusual happens, mm. it may be that requires them to make decisions very quickly. Uh, and these are very important decisions, then they may actually get themselves into trouble at that point. Yeah. And there is some, some, a lot of pretty cool research looking at how um, sleep restriction and circadian misalignment broadly classed as fatigue um, can impact the way that people um, uh, search for new information, take it in and process it. You know, you get tunnel vision, you stick to a a tried and true plan. um, And so the, the flexibility in responses does disappear. I'm just going to move on um, a little bit, I'm, and I'm thinking about this idea of the expectation of interrupted sleep, because mm. I guess that you can have um, two groups of people, um, both having sleep restriction, but one of them is in a group where they get told nothing, and another group is told that to expect uh, a call at some point during the next mm. five hours or whatever. Mm-hmm. When we have that expectation of interruption, how how does that change people's performance or sleep quality and quantity? The sixty billion dollar question, Saab. <laughs> um, well, the there is surprisingly there is very little empirical research looking at this. Everybody who has ever set an early alarm. Uh, for a flight, for example, you know, a really early alarm, so your alarm's going off at 3.30 or 4 o'clock, will have experienced what we call clock watching, where you essentially wake up every hour or 45 minutes to check whether your alarm's gone off. Anecdotally, I think that the expectation of interrupted sleep does impact sleep, but there's not, there's not good research out there. Um, a very small study done in ship's engineers uh, several years ago in um, Europe showed that uh, the when the ship's engineers were on call, they slept differently even on the nights when they did not get a call compared to the nights when they were off call. So the night of where they expected or 
it was possible that they would be interrupted. Their sleep was different compared to when they were not on call. Um, but And there's a couple of other very small studies, uh, which is why we're running a lab study here in Australia at the Appleton Institute at CQ University in Adelaide um, doing exactly that. And we've got uh, healthy normal participants, so not shift workers, um, but uh, healthy normal participants coming into the lab and we are messing around with a few conditions around um, related to the the expectation of interrupted sleep, and our initial findings uh, do suggest that expecting to be called does change the um, architecture of uh, of sleep compared to you will not be called tonight. And I guess that that has implications. I'm, I'm thinking about you know medics that I've known who perhaps are on the ward and mm. they have uh, protection. Perhaps you know they've been told you may be called, but we are just mm. not. Gonna, we're not going to interrupt you because you know there's a junior medic here who's going to take that stuff, and they get to have the opportunity to sleep, but they are going to get interrupted. So we can see that you know they're both sleeping in uh, strange uh, situations, not in their own bed. One of them has protection from an interruption. It's very clearly expressed. The other one doesn't. So mm-hmm. it's, it'll be interesting to see what you come up with and the applicability to, to someone working in that situation. Yeah, there was a there was a study out of the US um, a little while ago, which essentially had that as um, as the model. Uh, I think they call it a night float, where the the registrars had five hours of protected sleep, so they or sleep opportunity at least. Um, so they were told they would not be called. Of course, if you're on call in a hospital, there's always the chance if things go really pear shaped that you'll be needed. But essentially, five hours, someone else has got the got the pager, and uh, they were only measuring sleep outcomes and fairly um, gross sleep outcomes, so just total sleep time, um, and not surprisingly, and good results were that they did get a lot more sleep when the night float was there. They still got it. They they got to um, they had the same opportunity for sleep, but yeah, did not sleep the same without the night float. Um, and the next point is lost. I'll get that back in a minute. No worries. I'll, I'll, <laughs> I'll just move on because I guess I'm thinking about what's that look like over an extended period of time. So I'm thinking about firefighters in mm-hmm. um, f- high fire risk season mm-hmm. where mm-hmm. you've got a high expectation over a number of nights, maybe even weeks, that you mm-hmm. may have uh, interrupted sleep. What, is, what does that look like what, uh, in terms of sleep and performance? Yeah, so this is a really interesting one um, because – uh, I think it was maybe last year or the year before here in South Australia, we had a, a real um, rough fire season that went for a long period of time. And it was rough because, um, you know, fuel had cured early. Um, we had a lot of fire weather, as in hot north winds and dry days. Um, and talking to the chief officer here at the Country Fire Service in South Australia, he felt very much like his whole team, you know, across the state, people were just um, exhausted by the end of the season because they were just on high alert the entire time. Um, and I, uh, the sleep factor in that has to be a critical of critical importance. Um, and that does add to the one of the reasons why we launched into this um, this work is to understand a bit more about how sleep is impacted even if a call doesn't happen so that uh, strategies can be put in place to manage risks of the next day performance and that is the point that I had lost earlier if you're if you're not sleeping well 
then your next day performance is very likely to be impacted. What we don't know is if you've if you've essentially slept all night, but it hasn't been as good quality, and when I say that, uh, I mean it hasn't been as deep. You've spent more time in uh, light stages of sleep, perhaps some fragmentation that you are or are not a, uh, aware of. Um, if it's less quality sleep, then your performance is likely or more likely to be um, impaired the following day. So across yeah, across a fire season, um, the the buildup of of chronic insufficient sleep and the impacts on, on performance, I think, are, are quite large. And as you're talking, I'm thinking about an analogous, perhaps, situation in terms of the dissipation of an aftershock sequence from earthquakes, which mm, we've yes. had quite a few um, big events in New Zealand over the last six or seven years, where you have uh, this feeling or expectation that there is going to be some kind of quake and what that might mean for you personally, but also in your work role, but also the nights where nothing happens. You but you also see this kind of decay curve where you know something is going to happen, but you just don't know when and the impact yeah. that, that may have on people. Yeah, absolutely. And um, uh, after the last uh, big one that you guys experienced, you know, watching people talk about, uh, particularly on, on social media, Facebook friends over there, um, you know, how badly they'd slept the, the, the nights following because just the idea of going to sleep and, and being woken by um, another event, aftershocks or, or an earthquake, was um, was stressful, and I think it's a, um, I think that's a really, it's a really important thing for people to be talking about and understanding. And a similar sort of, um, you know, when we have heat waves over here, I know you guys probably don't experience that as much, but heat waves um, in Australia, where we've got a week of you know, 35 plus temperatures and everyone is, um, is tired and you, you see things out in the community on the roads and, and the way that people interact, everyone's just a bit grumpy and, and not performing as well. So uh, raising awareness about those sorts of um, outcomes is really important. I'm smiling because, yes, you're right, we haven't had uh, that great a summer. Uh, thanks very much. Uh, but, uh, but I'm also, you know, I've, I've had this conversation in, in Canterbury and Christchurch. I said, look, imagine the whole city has been given uh, a newborn uh, and, yes. and you're essentially getting up every night, every night. about mm. every half hour or an hour in an, on an un irregular reinforcement schedule and you've mm. been doing that for months and years. What does that look like when people get together? driving past each other or into each mm. other having mm -hmm. conversations or talking past each other rather than to each other i, I think you're right i think a, a heat wave situation you with that um sleeplessness perhaps over a slightly shorter time period or perhaps over a long time period has really big implications for how societies function i think not just individuals yes absolutely it it really does and we you know during heat waves we do talk about the fact that you haven't slept as well we have our, our australasian sleep association our sleep health foundation are, are always in the media saying take care of yourselves you know be more aware crossing the road driving interacting with your family and your colleagues um give everyone a little bit extra break <laughs> yes yeah i'm thinking about um alarms um i think one part of the paper which is interesting talks about the call signal um and mm. the idea that actually if it's a relatively low level sound 
then people seem to get anxious about missing that sound. And I'm, I sit there and I think, you know, we have this kind of low level anxiety where people are constantly checking their phones. I know that mm. I, ch- I can if I'm, you know, I try to be good and have an alarm clock. But if I don't have that with me and I'm, I'm checking my phone, I'm constantly worried about missing the alarm and, and oversleeping. Mm. So I end up checking the phone from about 4 a.m. <laughs> <laughs> and it's ridiculous. So, yeah, that, that's interesting. So for people on call, what would what would uh, a piece of advice be? Uh, in terms of trying to maximize the quality and the quantity of their sleep? Yeah, the the on-call one is tricky because um, obviously the call comes either on a page or, a, or the phone or by a text. And so I think whatever you can do to make that signal as loud as possible to reduce your apprehension or anxiety around missing it, the better. If, you're, if you've set an alarm for an early morning um, flight or whatever, then set two. <laughs> That's the most simple um, advice I can provide. Um, have Just have a backup alarm. Set mm. your phone and your iPad. I mean, we've all got all of them. I don't know if I'm allowed to say brand names there, sorry. Uh, we've all got se- several devices plus pa- perhaps an alarm clock. So setting a couple. If you're on call though, you, uh, the you just need your whatever the device is that's supposed to be waking you up on as loud as possible. And I th- this is... Um, uh, we did some qualitative work, some um, interview work a couple of years ago led by Jess Patterson here in our group where she talked to um, on-call retained and uh, metro firefighters about the alarm and uh, responding to on-call scenarios. And those guys, they were all males, talked about if they'd gone a few nights in a row without having a call, then they got worried about their pager being broken and they would actually call the office and say, please, can you test my pager? Because now I'm worried that my phone or my device is not actually working. Um, So a couple of nights of actually good sleep perhaps is not always uh, what appears on the surface. No, because you sit there worrying about whether you're missing the signal. Whether you're missing it, yeah, yeah, exactly. So one of our conditions in our our lab study that we're running at the moment is um, a quiet alarm versus a loud alarm uh, to see whether the the difference impacts uh, sleep. Yeah, objectively. Yeah. Mm. Um, and you can do that, can't you? When um, you set your alarm using a smartphone or other devices, mm. is that you can have this quiet sort of, you know, crescendo that gets to a point where it's assuming that it'll wake you up gently. Or you yes. can have this kind of more traditional clanging, 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 yeah. sort of like <laughs> alarm clock that wakes you up. And I guess that that's related to one of your ideas that you talk about that, that's quite common in the sleep research is sleep, in, sleep inertia. Mm. Um, and how uh, what what that is and how it is that you can deal with that. So perhaps you can spend a, a couple of moments explaining what sleep inertia is. Yeah, sure. So sleep inertia is the the uh, term that we use to describe that foggy, fuzzy feeling that you have when you first wake from sleep, um, and you feel a bit weird and you don't perform quite as well depending on what it is you're doing. Um, and we all have it. We we probably experience it mostly. Um, after an afternoon nap (laughs) if we've slept a little bit long or when we are woken by our alarms and it is usually worse and lasts longer if you are woken out of a deeper stage of sleep which is why you we're more likely to experience it if we're woken by an alarm as opposed to waking up naturally Mm. Um, and then the afternoon nap you know if it's a longer one and you actually get into a deep stage of sleep then that's when you're more likely to feel uh, sleep inertia 
And it is um, there is some pretty good research to show the changes in performance that are associated with sleep inertia. Um, and it does impact, you know, similarly, the similar sort of things that I've talked about uh, before in terms of um, reaction time and vigilance and decision making, etc. Okay, so if you are in this position where you are working in these sorts of situations where you're on call or perhaps you're woken up from a, from a nap and you have to get on with something uh, mm. and you're, you're aware that you may have this kind of cognitive deficit for a while where you're not as good at the tasks as you, as you could be, um, mm-hmm. what are the sorts of things that people can do in order to um, speed their process through that grogginess up to a fully alert state? Yeah, good question. Um, there, I'm not sure that we've got great uh, evidence for what you can do, although we, we ran a study a, a little while ago, a little pilot study, where we were looking at the um, stress response associated with the alarm. And in that study, we had to collect a little bit of blood using a finger prick. And that finger prick uh, was taken before we did our cognitive test battery. And we did not find any effects of sleep inertia uh, on waking after people had been pricked with a needle in their finger. So that might be one one way to reduce (laughs) the effects of sleep inertia, but probably not recommended um, and certainly not recommended by me. Um, But uh, things like uh, getting mobile is probably one of them. We are interested in whether doing a bit of um, exercise uh, you know, a few star jumps or something gets the body ready for a um, uh, to respond, um, increases arousal and uh, blood flow, etc. We're going to do a study on that pretty soon. Um, but really, it's probably a, a about time and um, making sure that you don't go from uh, fast asleep to driving a vehicle within, you know, a matter of seconds. So these firefighters who are you know getting getting ready and out the door and into their vehicles in ninety seconds, um, that if they are being roused from a deep sleep, that could potentially be problematic. It could be, and they tell me that the drivers are uh, not sleeping, or they choose the driver depending on who has been uh, resting. However, we also do have, uh, and this these this will be a universal. Uh, story and even probably non-on-call workers have experienced it. Um, we've got we've had reports where um, five uh, emergency response pe- people are responding from home. Uh, the pager goes off and then they sort of arrive at the depot or the brigade or the station with not a lot of rec- recollection of how they got there. Uh, so yeah, that drive immediately upon waking is certainly um, a higher risk time particularly when we're looking at rural areas and we're perhaps more reliant on volunteer firefighters Mm -hmm. or emergency services who are coming from home. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, and uh, in Australia, you know, that's pretty much uh, our rural rural brigades are staffed almost predominantly by volunteers who are are operating from home, yeah. Yeah, similarly here in New Zealand. Um, One of the things that you finished the paper off talking about is this great phrase, I love this phrase, countermeasures, uh, to to support waking from sleep, to try to, you know, augment this waking response, as as you said, just Mm. to try to counteract these uh, sleep inertia deficits. And no surprise, um, I think you've pretty much fingered coffee as a pretty good Mm. support in this area. 
Yeah, coffee is a pretty good support in all sorts of areas, isn't it? Um, <laughs> it is one of the uh, – well, it works. Caffeine works to increase arousal, uh, reduce sleepiness. Um, it, uh, it works better if you don't use it a lot. Uh, if you use it strategically, um, keep it away from your sleep as far as possible because it, it impacts most people's sleep. Not everybody's, um, but yeah, the the there's been a small amount of work done looking at um, caffeine administration uh, just prior to sleeping. Obviously, you can't really do that unless you're in a laboratory. Um, but also the use of um, caffeinated gum and that sort of that sort of thing as well. So um, yeah, which is why we're we're we want to have a look at other ways of. Um, getting the body ready to perform upon waking and why exercise is one of our um, one of our ideas is there anything else that's been identified as uh, potentially useful I mean it, you, I noticed that in one of the studies you talk about that there was a placebo gum pellet or a pellet containing 100 milligrams of caffeine and I know that chewing gum has been linked with um, increasing alertness as well so i guess the caffeine response was over and above whatever chewing gum could uh, the gum confirm. yeah 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 the, the, the chewing gum without caffeine is it the, it's not super strong research uh, findings um there is some evidence to suggest that that the action of chewing gets things going but um I think it's mostly about the caffeine there. I think it's it's really about the time. I mean, and, and you know as well, and people would um, have the same experience of um, the the few minutes that it actually takes to switch back on. Mm. Um, and people are people that we've talked to in these um, in these studies say that you know the alarm goes, they take three or four minutes just to get everything on. You know, all their all their bits of clothes on. Double check what they've got, and then um, before they actually get in the car. Mm. Um, really, the the best thing at the moment we have for managing sleep inertia is probably time. One question I, I was thinking about um, when I was um, reading this paper was um, thinking about the con- the context in which people are sleeping. So say, for example, we're talking about voluntary firefighters or emergency service personnel, and often they'll be at home with their families and they may be co-sleeping as mm-hmm. well with somebody else. Um, what sort of impact does co-sleeping have upon people's readiness for being on call or, or how does it impact upon um, all those arrangements? How, how do people manage that? Yeah, I think it's probably they manage it by trial and error, I think, Saab. The, you know, what works for one person won't necessarily work for another. The um, experience of uh, sleeping next to someone who is on call will vary as well. Um, I hope my system won't mind me telling this story, but she's um, uh, my sister lives in a rural area and she has just um, become a volunteer paramedic um, and she's just had her first few on-call shifts and uh, she hasn't been called yet. Uh, she really wants to be just so that she knows what actually happens and, and can experience the, the call. But, yeah, she's not sleeping well. Her partner is apparently sleeping fine. Um, so it, it hasn't impacted him at all. But I think that there, I've got another example of a um, <laughs> some work we did a, a few years ago with a um, doctor in a regional town. Uh, there were three hospital doctors, and so they took it in turns to be on call for the hospital. And um, we did a, a, a polysomnography study where we actually wired these doctors up 
in their homes to measure their sleep. Uh, Sarah J did this work. Um, and we showed that they did sleep a bit differently when they were on call. And one of their wives, as it happened, they were all male doctors, and one of their wives said, please, could you wire me up so that um, I can demonstrate how badly I sleep when my husband is on call, <laughs> which we did, and she did. <laughs> uh, and she often uh, she reported that often in the morning when he'd taken a few calls, um, she would remind him who he'd talked to and what he'd actually <laughs> said to them. So I think that the, 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 uh, the on-call um, experience does impact not only the person who's on call, but uh, yeah, more broadly the family as well. Yeah, as yeah, as I, would uh, the introduction of a newborn into that situation. Uh, which indeed, this is the metaphor we were talking about before. Yeah. Um, okay, so I'm I'm just aware of time and how generous you've been with that. So I'm just going to try and round this off and ask you to summarise what you think the main the main points of this paper were but also who should care about it i mean of course the people who are on call but who else should be thinking about the implications in terms of what they should be doing to make this um a more palatable choice for people yeah look I th for, for me sub all of this work is uh, the main point is that um being on call is often viewed as, particularly if you don't get called, it's viewed as a night off, in inverted commas. And I don't think it should be because everything that we know about how on-call conditions, even without a call, impact sleep uh, means that we shouldn't be expecting people to be performing as well as they would on as um, uh, after a night off. So I think that's number one, that on call, being on call is not the same um, as, uh, as uh, being off completely. Um, and that has, that's relevant for not only next day functioning but also longer term, as we talked about with the fire season or um, on alert after, after earthquakes, that the longer term impacts for health and well-being of repeat um, insufficient sleep or disturbed sleep are important. So I think that that's key for um, individuals who are on call, but also the organisations that employ um, and are responsible for these individuals to set up rosters that provide for um, actual off-call nights um, and protected sleep um, fairly often. That's tricky in some areas, uh, as we've talked about already, our rural areas particularly. Um, but I think that the the organisations that are responsible for them and individuals have to take some uh, accountability for actually choosing sleep on um, on enough nights to get good rest. And that's it for this week. Thanks for listening to our show. Uh, you can follow me at Saab on Twitter or the show at WCWTP. We've also started publishing the transcripts of our show at SciBlogs, which is a portal of all the science bloggers in New Zealand. And you can find that at SciBlogs, that's S-C-I-B-L-O-G-S dot co dot N-Z. You can find us on Facebook, and if you've got any questions or comments about the show, please email me, contact at whocareswhatsthepoint.com. Until next week, have a great week, and please listen to the back catalogue and let other people know about this podcast if you enjoyed the show. Thanks for listening. Who cares? What's the point?
Thank you.